Welcome to No Time to Waste, the podcast that inspires and motivates us to maximize our moments. I'm your host, Allison Haddon. I'm battling terminal cancer, but I'm focused on living my best life as my best self every day. Join me as I chat with resilient adventurers, seekers, trailblazers, and exceptionally good humans as we explore what it means to live fully because there's no time to waste for all of us. Andy Puttycomb is the co-founder and voice of All Things Headspace, the world's leading mindfulness, meditation, and sleep app. But Andy's story begins long before Headspace. In his early 20s, in the middle of getting his university degree in sports science over in the UK, Andy unexpectedly dropped out to go travel to the Himalayas to study meditation instead. And that kicked off a 10-year journey training all over the world and Andy becoming an ordained Buddhist monk. Not surprisingly, I encountered an incredibly compassionate and humble human who's also a cancer survivor, which we got to talk about. It was a truly special episode full of hope to kick us off for 2021 and make sure to hang on till the end for a short meditation led by the voice himself. Here's Andy Puttycomb for No Time to Waste. What I love about you, and I think anyone else that either knows you or doesn't know you would agree, is you know, although you're the co-founder of Headspace, right, um, you're an ordained Buddhist monk, um, you're a cancer survivor, you're also like this normal guy. You talk about growing up and playing rugby and, and having sport be a huge part of your life, which it's been a huge part of my life too, right? Um, going to the pub and staying out too late with like your mates, right? Yeah, yeah it happens. Um, yeah. <laughs> it happens. I've been sober for many years now. So, um, you know, majoring in sports science at uni, right? And, and then starting like one of the fastest growing wellness tech companies in the world that I have become personally obsessed with, Um it, it became my heir, um, especially in the last couple of weeks as I experienced a ton of trauma. It's a very strange kind of thing. I, I get to meet lots of folks, obviously, who kind of use it and they write in and everything. But I don't think Rich or I ever imagined when we started out the, the types of scenarios. We never even kind of went there in our minds, the types of scenarios that people kind of might be using it in. And it's those kinds of stories that kind of mo- motivate us to to come in every day. Have you always been like this? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's great that the company's grown in the way it has. I'm not responsible for that. The team's responsible for that. And and I'm proud of what they've achieved. But I don't know. I think the grounding, I think part of it's kind of upbringing, part of it was training in the monastery. It would be really weird to go and spend that much time kind of, training the mind and um, training in, I don't know, the things that you train in as a monk or a nun is in humility and compassion and, you know, all that stuff. And then kind of just, you know, blow it all off and kind of go crazy and become sort of, you know, this weird um, Silicon Valley caricature. Um, so, you know, I don't know. It's, we, we feel really, uh, feel very fortunate. In Rick and I, you know, I, I feel very fortunate the one I went to, I had the opportunity in the window, right, to go away and spend that time. It's really rare in life to find a chunk of time like that where you're not entrenched in a career where, you know, maybe you're not in a relationship, you don't have children, all those kinds of things. And to spend time with some of the most brilliant minds in the world. And so like now I just have the very fortunate kind of position where I get to share that with lots of people. So um, that keeps 
I think that keeps us both like really, really grounded. Yeah. Well, I have to be honest, it still kind of weirds me out because I keep being like, what is the catch here? There has got to be a catch with this guy. So yeah. far, I haven't, I haven't found it. We keep chatting. Um, I mean, I, well, I often kind of joke that we, we have, we're like the most dull and boring um, entrepreneurs that you'll ever kind of meet. Like we don't, we live in LA, but we live in, you know, on the West side and we don't really go out. Um, we don't do all the, the parties and dinners and everything else. We like surfing. We like hiking. We like mountain biking. Um, we eat a pretty clean, din- you know, kind of diet. Uh, we go to bed boringly early at night. Um, and it's kind of, you know, for us that works. And I know kind of some people love all of the other stuff. I'm not suggesting one is better than the other. It's just that's kind of how we, we like to live. And, yeah, I guess you could say it's quite a normal kind of life in that way. All right. Well, I'm going to keep trying to find something <laughs> weird. Um, you know, uh, when you and again, um, I've heard all these stories uh, and listened to a lot of previous uh, interviews of you. Um, but for for those of you that don't know, you know, Andy was, you know, in uni sports science. Um, there there was something that did happen that sounds like was sort of the catalyst for you going, you know, I don't know if I'm using my time the right way. And sort of that tragic event that uh, I believe in your early 20s caused you to, to, to leave uni and then go to the Himalayas and start training. Do you mind sharing that experience? There were actually, a, and it's, it's kind of worth saying well, there, there was that experience, but there were a couple of things kind of around it. There are actually three things that happened in quick succession. And um, and it actually took a cut. It's worth saying as well. It took a couple of years for it to really sink in and to make sense. I think very often when difficult stuff happens in life, we want an answer immediately, sense of direction, maybe less pain. I probably carried that stuff around with me for a year and a half, two years until it really started to make sort of more sense in in my mind. So when I was probably uh, 18, 19, I think I was, um, I was standing with a group of friends outside a, a club. Christmas Eve, early Christmas morning, and a drunk driver lost lost control of their car and crashed into the group um, that I was standing in. Two people died. Um, about 12 people kind of ended up very badly injured. And there were three of us um, who didn't get hit. Um, and I was one of the ones that, that didn't get hit. Um, and I think that in itself, that alone probably kind of would have shook my shook my world. But then shortly after, my stepsister went out, was out riding a bike, um, a van driver fell asleep um, and knocked her, knocked her off a bike and killed, killed her. And then probably, I don't know, maybe six months later, an old sort of an ex-girlfriend um, who'd been quite unwell um, died on the operating table. And I think those, the way that it happened and the way that I experienced it was like a constant, constant reminder that life was, life was short. And I think at that age, that's really hard to, it's hard to process at any age, right? Um, and I did all the other stuff to try and work out kind of, was there a way to escape it? And I just couldn't escape those thoughts. I couldn't escape those feelings. 
meditation had always been a part of our sort of family life kind of growing up. And for me, the only way I was ever going to find peace of mind was to sit with my mind. I just, I read books and I would feel really inspired and everything. And, but then the rest of the day kind of carried on and I didn't feel the same. And so I think at some level there was a desire to escape that pain and that discomfort. And on the other hand, it was a more sort of positive kind of um, search for something, something more than I had experienced in my life up until that point. So it was kind of an interesting balance of running away on the one hand and sort of going on a, on a search on the other. And that was gonna, I was going to ask about, um, you know, you go from at least the, the, I guess, second experience that you mentioned of your stepsister, um, yeah. which is, which I can't even imagine. And then going into this incredibly structured, mentally disciplined environment, right, where it is literally you and your thoughts, right? Um, the most extreme, and I was sharing this with my partner last night, I was like, dude, when he was in Burma, it was so hardcore. Um, could you just share quickly, like what a typical light, uh, typical day for you training as a Buddhist monk in Burma, what one of those days look like? Sure. <laughs> Excuse me. Sure. It's, Burma was probably the biggest shock. That was kind of going from quite a busy life to yeah, very, very sort of still life. Um, so at that particular monastery, when you're in retreat, and when I first arrived there, actually, so um, it's uh, about 18 hours a day um, is the sort of the schedule. Um, and you get up at about, I think it's like 2, 2.30 to start at 3. Um, and then you do an hour of sitting and an hour of walking meditation throughout the day. You alternate. The only two hours that are different is from 5 till 6 in the morning and from 11 to 12 in the morning when you have your breakfast and your lunch. So there's no eating after after midday. Yeah, that was a big thing for me, Andy. I literally like really fixated not on the nine hours of sitting meditation and nine hours of walking <laughs> in, in, the, in, the, in a room, correct? In a room, yeah. But I kept fixating on the fact that I was like telling my partner, I was like, they can't eat after 1130. <laughs> and like that, I was, I mean, I was raised like food is love and food is comfort. And so, and also food, I have food scarcity issues. So the fact that you stopped eating at 1130, I was like, that's the worst part of all. Yeah, I, I found it, you know, especially having come from, um, from a very sporty kind of background, I had like really high metabolism, I would, in before going there, I would eat sort of five, six times a day. So I really, I struggled with that. And I actually, um, in the in the Burmese monastery, I found a really sweet, um, a lovely old monk. He must have been in his, I don't know, late 70s, 80s. And no one really spoke much English. He spoke a few words. And I remember kind of telling him kind of, you know, I'm just like really, really hungry. It was like late in the evening. And he, and he just kind of gestured, gestured to me. And I went to his room and he had this little, um, this little tub of, it's kind of like, I guess, I don't know, like Marmite or Vegemite or I don't know yeah. what, you know, but it was some, some kind of um, thing. And he kind of, he, mi he mixed it up with some, some hot water for me and kind of gave it to me. And, um, and I, I used to go, I used to go there some evenings and just have, when I was really hungry and have a little, a little so cup. So it was your cheat. That was like your cheat. He cheated. Yeah, exactly. And it kind cool. of, it, it worked. Yeah. 
Yeah, the old monk was basically like, come here. And then was like, dude, this is how we hack it. <laughs> exactly. And you were like, I'll take it. We dissolve it and then it's not yeah. food anymore. Yeah, and then it's just liquid. It's just liquid sustenance. Um, all right, so so my, my question is, you're in this, this crazy structured envi- environment was and as you mentioned right we're all human you're claiming to be human again i'm still i'm still sussing that out um was being in that kind of environment after experiencing that kind of tragedy and trauma yeah were was it just a okay then i'm just going to go full on process and think about all this or was it so much that you needed to almost go i need to put that trauma on a shelf and yeah. and kind of like touch it later. Yeah, I mean, I wish I'd been as sort of clear-minded uh, as that. I didn't even really have the capacity at that stage to think, oh, okay, that's what's troubling me. I'll put that to the side. It was just a maelstrom of kind of thought and confusion of, of feeling. And I would say actually in those early days, it manifested in this way. So I actually didn't go straight to Burma. I went to India first thinking I was going to be in one monastery. Eh, I felt the monastery wasn't right. Maybe the monastery wasn't right, or maybe my mind wasn't kind of comfortable enough sitting. So I went to another monastery, got to that monastery. I'm not sure the monastery is kind of right. And it took me kind of a few places, I think, to really get comfortable. And some of that was the external environment. But I think as I look back now, retrospectively, I think a lot of that was me actually even getting to a point where I was comfortable enough to sit with the mind, to sit with that, that discomfort. And then, though, there was uh, a moment where you realized, um, I think it was in India at the more chill monastery, um, mm-hmm. where you realized basically this, I maybe this isn't the only path for me to live a life of service, right? Like, I think I can be a lay person and actually, actually have a bigger impact on the world. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I was actually, so I'd, I'd actually, I'd left the monastery in India. They'd asked me to go and um, do some teaching um, in Russia, in Moscow. So I was living in Moscow and um, teaching in a, a meditation center. And yeah, it was there I met lots of people kind of leading very ordinary lives um, who struggled with, you know, everything from, you know, relationships and stress and sleepless nights and all the kind of stuff that we just do as human beings. Um, but who they had no desire to go and become a monk or a nun. They had no special interest in becoming sort of Buddhist or taking on someone else's culture, religion, faith or anything else. They just wanted a way to kind of cope and be happier in life. And it was someone I met there who kind of said, I was chatting to him this morning, funny enough, that must have been about 25 years ago, but that was this morning. And, um, you know, and he said, like, I'd love you to kind of come and work with the people in my workplace because everyone's stressed out their minds. But, you know, you you can't come kind of dressed like that because I work in an oil company. This is Russia. And, yeah. And so um, it just it got it really got me thinking kind of about, you know, what was most important? Was it sharing what I'd learned or was it being a monk? And that was a really easy, easy decision to make. Wow. And uh, and then soon after you connect with Rich, right? Yeah, so soon after I went back to the UK and, you know, um, I started doing one-to-one in a, in a clinic. And, um, and I met Rich through a mutual, mutual friend and he just clicked with it straight away. And he said, this is insane. 
Uh, he'd be having a really tough time, and he'll say himself, I'm not sharing anything sort of confidential here. You know, he's pretty burnt out from working in, in an ad agency. And um, and it just kind of it worked for him from day one. And he said, you know, this is mad. We have to find a way to kind of take it outside of the room and share it with other people. So we just started chatting with each other for about three months. And uh, we got on so well. Uh, we became very good friends. And we just decided that we would we would do it. And there's no way to be clear, you know, it, it needs both things, right? Like it needed kind of what I had learned from other people um, elsewhere, but it also needed Rich's ability to, to look at that and kind of say, well, what does that look like within the world that we live right now? Because I didn't know anything about business or technology or any of that stuff. So, you know, it was just a an a really amazing coming together of two different sort of skill sets, if you like. Yeah, I'd encourage anybody that's listening, if this sounds if this sounds cool to you, you know, Guy Raz and How I Built This has been one of my favorite podcasts for years. And then to get to hear both Andy and Rich be able to bring both those founder perspectives and have Guy, who is like just a he's like a dream boat. He's like a, like one of my nerd crushes. Um, he and Shankar Vedantam, I'm just like, ah, oh, dreamy. Um, but he, he just did a, a masterful job of interviewing both of you and, and both of your, the yin and yang of you and Rich came through and the Headspace story. I would definitely recommend anybody listen to it. Um, but then, you know, it was now, I guess, seven years ago in 2013, you received a diagnosis that I suspect changed everything. You know, it, it did in some ways, um, and maybe not so much in others. And we can you know, we can dig dig into it a bit. But I think the the shock, like the shock, changed things. Um, you know, we were only a few years into Headspace. We just moved to America. We'd been here for six weeks. I didn't have any medical insurance. Um, it was that kind of quick on arrival, and. Um, the shock of it definitely really, really hit me. You know, I, I felt it and, uh, obviously it shook Rich as well. Cause you know, he suddenly had to take on all of my workload as well as, as well as his, um, for those that don't know, uh, Andy was diagnosed in 2013 oh, yeah. with testicular cancer. Yeah. And, yeah. And I, yeah. I, you're in remission now. I am. Thank you. Yeah. Um, Great. In fact, you mentioned Lance, so we share we share a, a doctor actually, um, in Dr. Dr. Craig Craig Nichols, and um, he was amazing. And how it kind of unfolded, um, and why Craig's important in this kind of story was, um, you know, I grew up in a house where my mum was, you know, mum's a therapist, and we went to an acupuncturist like at the age of like seven and eight, and so we grew up definitely leaning towards. Kind of those types of treatments rather than sort of going to the doctor we would still go to the doctor and the hospital kind of if we had to but and so i think when you know when i found out i had cancer i wasn't sort of too sure how that journey was going to unfold and definitely the first week when there's you know they don't really know they're doing the scans and all we have were predictions and the predictions were were not terribly good um and so for me and my wife, we were kind of thinking about, you know, sort of kids and do we need to sort of bank things and everything else to kind of make sure we have kids in the future if that happens. And there was kind of a lot going on. 
And having had the, the operation, they then said, okay, so we need to do three rounds of chemo and we need to take out all, all of your lymph nodes in a, in a second round. And look, I'm, I, am, I would take mainstream Western medicine anytime if I, if I felt kind of um, that I needed it and it was the right thing to do at the time. I just felt that, um, and look, we all grown up in different cultures. And um, I think in America, definitely there's um, a tendency to kind of um, to err on the side of caution and do more surgery rather than kind of less. Um, and I wasn't, I don't know, it just, for me, it didn't feel kind of right. So I, I started going around kind of trying to find different doctors and get different opinions and, and everything else. And, um, and eventually... Um, a uh, friend of Lance's um, recommended um, this doctor, and I went to see him. And he said, "Look, let's 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 do it differently. Kind of let's 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 do a kind of a more sort of wait and see sort of approach. If we need to operate, we will operate. and We'll operate fast. But in the meantime, let's kind of come up with a plan for how you know we're going to kind of work work with this." And so, I definitely changed kind of my I changed my. Uh, exercise and my diet and I was doing more meditation I was getting more sleep and it definitely reminded me of all the things that are important in maintaining a healthy sort of body and mind um, sometimes those things are out of our control and we don't necessarily have the ability to engage in them in that way but at that time I, I did and you know I was very very fortunate and it doesn't always work out this way you know and, and I'm really kind of conscious of that having spent a lot of time with a lot of people now um who have either gone through cancer or are going through cancer um but at that time um that that really kind of changed the way i was i was living and, and the way i was kind of thinking about it. it's not that i'd forgotten you know i think that the training itself from the monastery was be present be present be present and that was still part of my life very much so but with the move and the business and everything else, I was probably moving faster than is healthy and I was busier than I perhaps needed yeah. to be. So it was a, it was a good, a really solid reminder. Universe was tapping you going, slow it down, bud. Slow it down, right? Which, yeah. all right. Now, again, regular, you're feeling very human right now. I'm still, <laughs> I'm still testing. Um, is that why, was it your personal experience? So um, one thing I've really leaned on in the Headspace app has been the Coping with Cancer series that you did, the 30-part series that was narrated by you. What prompted you to, to create yeah. that? I, I think all those courses, you know, I really drew, drew on my own sort of experience in, in life. Um, and the cancer one, cancer one especially, you know, and it wasn't just my experience. It was, and I, I don't know um, your own situation, I assume whether, whether you kind of uh, are into sort of support groups or if you're friends or anything else kind of who are going through. I know some of them can be kind of awful. And, um, but I was, I was lucky, you know, I got linked up with a number of different people and some of those people, sadly, are not here anymore. Some are. But what it did for me is help me understand kind of they had been going through it for far longer than I had. I didn't really kind of understand the, the process that I was kind of going through. And, and I think kind of having those people around me and understanding their journeys as well as my own journey 
I, that allowed me to, when I was doing that course, to have a, a sense of, okay, how could I show up for people who were going through it, but also the friends and family of people that were going through it um, in a way that hopefully could offer some small bit of comfort in the midst of a really like, difficult and challenging time. Uh, you know, as you just mentioned, you, you not only have the the patients who are going through their own perspective and their own experience, but you have the partners and the caregivers who are going through their own. And then you have kind of like the extended support of that, I, you know, not everyone is lucky enough to have. I have an incredible um, support network with my partner, with my my family, and then with an army of um, of friends. And so I, I am fortunate because I hear stories of people who don't have that. Um, so I just think there's a tremendous amount of potential for you to build out more content there. And again, that's just the business side of my brain that goes there. Um, did I, hope you, do. I hope we do. Yeah. Um, if you ever need any help, I'm here. Um, the, the other thing, you know, what what was what what did you look like mentally and emotionally when you were going through that cancer journey what did you look like on your worst day like can you remember a dark period did you think about what if this kills me oh absolutely yeah yeah um yeah it was kind of a mix it like a mixed bag you know i i don't I didn't go through sustained kind of days or weeks where I just felt kind of miserable or like it was the end or kind of, I didn't, I, I would come, I would sort of go through periods. So it might be either the initial shock of getting sort of the latest diagnosis, um, which would shock me for an hour. I might sort of come out, um, I think I might cry, you know, and sit in my car and cry and then, Actually, having cried, I kind of felt a bit better. And the rest of the day actually would be better. And there's a, and I'd say that was fairly kind of super frequent, but, but that was kind of the, the pattern. And there's a phrase in the monastery, you know, kind of where you sort of sit with, forget the religious kind of connotations of this or the religious kind of context where the idea is to sit with Buddha. So to sit with our innate kind of mind. And we sit with happy Buddha, we sit with sad Buddha, with angry Buddha, with scared Buddha. The type of Buddha is not so important. The, the point is to be present with how we're feeling in this moment. And that, for me, was the biggest thing on that journey, being able to sit with feeling sad some days, being able to, to sit with being really scared some days, and on other days, being able to sit with being happy because... I don't know, for whatever reason, something made me happy kind of that day, you know. So it wasn't just one color or one flavor that period of time. It was it was a roller coaster. And I think that the constant throughout that roller coaster was that willingness to kind of to, to sit with with the mind kind of as it as it was on that day. Yeah. It's really challenging because if you're someone like me who wants to try and control everything, which I believe most humans do um, to not be able to predict and to be so present minded that you allow yourself to just say, I'm not going to commit to that, uh, or I'm just going to see how I feel 
in that moment or in that day is a radical shift for me who likes everything buttoned up. Um, but that is one of the, I mean, I hate, I'll say it in the voice, one of the gifts of cancer um, has been my willingness to say, okay, I'll, I'll put forth a plan because I'm always going to put forth the plan and I'm going to control everything that I can control about it. But I'm also going to be willing to completely let go of that plan if I am feeling sad that day or I am feeling super aggro and angry or I, you know, I'm still going through weekly chemo and immunotherapy, like I'm tired. I'm lucky I don't, I don't feel that a, a lot. Um, but yeah, that's been really challenging. But the staying in the present moment, you know, um, I went on my own kind of like spiritual quest in my 20s when I got sober um, and, you know, just kind of like gobbled up everything. We didn't have podcasts then, but man, I would have listened to everything. But I just gobbled up um, every book I could and kind of went on this path and decided that if um, from a religious standpoint, although I was raised Catholic, if I were to sort of pick a team from a religious standpoint that I did enough searching that I was like Buddhism, like if I had to subscribe to one, I had to pick one, it would be Buddhism. Um, I'm into this. I, I like the vibe. I started going to a Buddhist center um, locally when I lived in San Diego and uh, kind of got connected to the community and went to Thich Nhat Hanh's place not Plum, not Plum Village in France, but his other one in Escondido, which is outside of San Diego. Um, and I even uh, started practicing martial arts. I got a scholarship to go to this competition that was in South Korea. And with the the two or three days that I had after the event, um, I took like an overnight b- bus to the mountains, and I spent three days at a monastery. So basically, Andy, it's like we're kind of the same uh, where, you know, you spent how many years training as a monk? I mean, I spent a good few years. A good few, well, I spent three days, um, but I know what it was like. I just posted. It was funny. I just found because Shutterfly showed me, you know, all the apps now are like your memory from a year ago. And basically you're like, they're just like, just makes you sad. Cause you're like, wow, that, that was nice being at that birthday party or that wedding or, um, but this was actually a memory that was like from 15 years ago, here's your photo. And it was from Shutterfly and it was me with the other lay people who were doing basically a, I want to be a monk for a couple days. And, uh, I, you know, we slept on the floor. Our wake up call was, I think at three 30 because we had sitting meditation at four, um, thank God they didn't restrict our food after 1130, yeah. but I do remember being hungry. So it yeah. was not a lot of food and it was definitely vegetarian or vegan. Um, but it was, it, it was this amazing experience that, you know, after three days I was good. Um, and, and so, you know, the concept of Buddhism, the, the, uh, you know, it is what it is, right? The non-judgment, the the things that we attach judgment to that we think are good today, we may find out tomorrow or 10 years ago, actually it was bad. The belief in uh, sort of a higher order and a reason for everything I subscribe to personally, even in my situation, which is totally bunk and unfair and is a great example of having a positive mindset, doing everything physically right, and yet still 
just getting kind of a crap sandwich. Um, but I do believe that maybe not in this lifetime, but in a future lifetime that I would be able to look back and go, there was a point to all of it. One of the things that I want to make sure I ask you before we do a meditation, because I still would, would love to selfishly have that, um, you know, how do I, I've realized that, you know, I, I am a high octane individual. I am a high energy, move fast. Um, I've been a fighter my whole life. Um, I believe that it's that grit and resilience that, you know, I heard when I talked to Lance a couple days ago, I was like, that's the fight. That's the fight in me that I have always brought, um, that I want to continue to bring to this cancer battle and my life. But what I found recently is the value in also, and part of it is just getting to know you and using headspace of, I also want to integrate more flow into my life, right? And so how can I, do you have any advice on how I maintain that powerful energy that I have that brings the fight that I don't want to lose, but also integrate more of the flow to find kind of an optimal performance in oh. fighting this cancer and also just living my life? Yeah, it's a great question. There's, look, there's different ways of thinking about that energy. You know, you can think about putting that energy to use kind of in a fight, as you described, or you could think about that energy sort of putting it to use kind of in terms of sort of transforming the mind or kind of experiencing kind of greater sense of love. Like there's, that energy isn't, isn't one dimensional. It doesn't have to be put into a fight or through or channeled through a particular emotion, even if we've always kind of lived that that way in our life. So it's really tricky with 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 words sometimes to kind of like, you know, to, to capture it. But when I think about, you know, and I in, I'm, in some ways, I, I know it may not feel like it because I've gone through that training and everything else. But I would say I was definitely kind of of a similar kind of ilk, you know, super competitive growing up and sporty and always on the move and a quick thinking mind and, and everything, not that clever, but quick thinking and, you know, all that sort of stuff. So what I found was that the more I was able to use that energy or allow that energy to sort of be a part of the process of letting go, not in a negative kind of sense of letting go, but letting go of the baggage, the storylines, the thinking, the anger, the frustration, the anxiety, and all of that stuff, the more useful it was. The more I used it to try and control things and to control my mind and to force a narrative and to control my emotions, the more painful kind of life was. So the cancer kind of question, you know, I don't know how often you get into these conversations with um, either other people who have cancer, but I heard so often kind of like there's the, I'm a survivor and kind of, and I'm going to beat it and I'm going to and and I under look, I'm not I'm incredibly fortunate that I wasn't in that kind of life threatening category. Um, and I'm very kind of conscious of that. And I do understand the sentiment of it. But ultimately, I don't I think that like, if I think about kind of what sort of conditions in the body and in the mind would be most conducive to recovering from an illness. 
I personally believe, and I could I could be really naive, and I don't know anything about medicine, you know, but I, this is my own personal kind of philosophy. I believe it's far more likely to be one of love rather than hate. I believe it's likely to be one of letting go rather than holding on. And so I kind of look at that, that passion and that energy as a really transformational force that can be used in a way to let go rather than kind of hold on. And I don't, I don't see the two as being, you know, diametrically sort of opposed. I just, I, there is energy and energy exists in all of us, exists all around us. And sometimes we feel as though the energy controls us. Sometimes we feel like we're kind of in control of it. And I think if we can learn to sit with it and sort of just gently nudge it in the right direction, then really kind of special things happen. And I, I fundamentally believe, to your point about, so it's not that we have to kind of give up on the direction. It's more about how dependent we are on the outcome for our sense of kind of happiness or purpose and everything else. So for me, kind of, if let's use cancer as an example. So I'm sat here kind of today. There's a point over there where I don't want to have cancer anymore. That is a great direction to take in life, right? I'm not suggesting that we abandon the hope that we kind of wouldn't have it. That would be crazy. But that's the direction. But we don't know what the journey is to there. So the, the passion and the intensity and the energy, we can point in that direction and say, okay, this is where I'm going. I have no idea if I'm going to make it. I have no idea if it's going to be in a straight line or if it's going to take, if life's going to take me on a different kind of journey. But as long as my sense or our sense of happiness isn't dependent on the destination, then we're able to kind of be present on the journey. And I feel like that allows us to do both things. One, to have that sense of direction, but at the same time to let go kind of en route, if any of that makes sense. That's like a mic drop moment. Um, yeah. Uh, that was that was a great explanation. I'm still just taking it in, and I will listen and re-listen to this and continue to take it in selfishly. Um, last question before hopefully we have time for just a quick meditation. What I like to ask everybody is, you know, I talk about living like there's no time to waste, which is, you know, confronting mortality, which is really difficult for us as humans to do. I did a lot of research before my TEDx talk on death anxiety and terror management theory. And there's so much, um, there, there are, there are great reasons why we as humans want to just avoid the entire topic of death and dying, even though it's the only universal inevitability in life. But No Time to Waste is about having the courage to to confront that mortality, um, crafting a life without regret, um, and then maximizing moments, which I like to talk about the things that matter being gratitude, human connection, and joy. Um, so sharing that with you, what is no time to waste or living like there's no time to waste? Like, what does that look like for you? What, do you, what does that mean to you? So the thing that immediately just pops in, into my mind is kind of following my heart. Whether you think about it, it follows your heart, follow your gut, listen to your intuition. Kind of, I... I, I my experience in life has been, I, I'm, I, I don't, I'm not a very analytical person. I tend to just, I, what I feel, I tend to kind of follow through with. And um, maybe I've just been kind of lucky that things have worked out one way or another, but I really believe 
kind of that we should spend less time caught up in our thinking and more time listening to that inner voice, which normally kind of brings us a, a sense of peace, but also points us in the, the right direction in life. That's great. It's also why it's great that you have Rich by your side with Headspace, because I'm sure he'd be like, yeah, well, it would also help if we looked at some data, Andy, and made some decisions around what the forecast is going to look like, not based on your gut. You should, based- you should, you no, no, no hope casting. You should have been there in those early in those early meetings in those first couple of years because funny enough, Rich is like probably probably leans a bit more creative than data, and so we would both be there in in, in a meeting with you know sort of data engineers and stuff. Rich and I would be like, look, we have nothing to base it on, but we just kind of got a feeling. Like, let's just do that. And they'd be like, but look at the data. So. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Um, awesome. Well, th- this has been incredible. I, I would love um, selfishly for you to just lead a, a short, you know, short meditation. Um, basically for me personally, um, but for, for everyone that's going to l- listen to this, this has been, um, I, this has just been, this has just been lovely. You are lovely. And so far, I, I believe it seems like you are human. Um, you are not you are not half cyborg. <laughs> come and come and come and spend twenty four hours in our house with our two little, very energetic little boys, and you yeah. see just how human I am. Trust me. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you you do seem to be the real deal. Maybe after COVID, um, I do miss Southern California. I miss. Uh, I'm really- I miss LA. If I were ever, yeah, Santa Monica would be where I would be. And uh, I miss surfing too. Um, So maybe, maybe we'd go surfing together if I get myself out there. Right. That'd be rad. Paddle out. Longboard, shortboard. Um, I do both, but locally more short. Look at you. I mean. Great, great mobility and flexibility then for a man of. (laughs) A man of my age. I'm here for you. Um, But the, the fact that I. I carry a surfboard over to the water and paddle around on a surfboard. Doesn't in any way talk to my lack of ability on the board. So, you know, just to be clear. All right. That's, an, that's enough of your, your, your very humble. Um, no, it's so. true. It's so true. Okay. Should we meditate? Yeah. Okay. So um, I'm going to assume that you're, you're comfortable where you are, Anderson, but if for anyone tuning, tuning in, um, you know, I think don't get too hung up on kind of being in the right sort of posture. You can meditate sitting up, lying down. The most important thing is to have a back which is fairly sort of straight um, and your, you know, the rest of the body just sort of nicely, nicely relaxed. And I always recommend starting with, you'll know this, Anderson, because it's at the start of every, every session, but I always recommend starting with the eyes open rather than the eyes closed. So rather than trying to focus too quickly, kind of, Try and just set up a sort of soft focus in front of you. So it's as though you can see everything around you in the room, but you can't see any one thing in detail. So you're not staring at a particular point. It's just that soft focus. And we're just going to maintain that while taking sort of two or three big, deep breaths. And we're going to breathe in through the nose. And out through the mouth. So as you breathe in, just sort of a sense of the lungs expanding. As you breathe out, just feeling the muscles in the body soften. So just one more time, breathing in through the nose. 
And this time as you breathe out, just gently allowing the eyelids to close. And just take a moment before you do anything else, just to enjoy that feeling of having stopped, having nothing to do, nowhere to go. And just feeling the weight pressing down against the seat or the floor beneath you. There might be some sounds around you, just allow those sounds to come and go. Don't need to think about them too much. Same with thoughts. Don't worry if lots of thoughts sort of pop up in the mind. It's part of the process, just allowing any thoughts to come and go. And as you take a moment to pause, just check in, in with the body. So notice how your body feels right now. Sometimes it's going to feel heavy. Sometimes it'll feel light. Some days you might experience a lot of restlessness or agitation. Some days the body's going to be very still. So just taking the time to notice how the body feels. And in just the same way, taking the time to notice how the breath in the body feels. So you don't have to breathe in any special way. Just allowing the body to breathe its own natural rhythm. And you might feel that rising and falling sensation in your stomach, around the diaphragm, around the chest. Doesn't matter where you feel it, you're just starting to notice that rising and falling movement. You can't feel anything, just gently place your hand on your stomach. And we're just going to stay with that feeling for a few moments. So know that it's natural for the mind to wander off. As soon as you realize it's wandered, just gently coming back. that rising and falling movement. So just knowing this is a, a place to come back to, not just in your meditation, but any time during the day, just pausing for long enough, just to notice the breath, to be present with the breath and to allow any thinking to come and go. And right now though, just gently bringing the attention back once again to the body. Just coming back to that feeling of weight, of contact, sounds around you. And whenever 
and you feel ready, you can just gently open the eyes again. And welcome back. Hi. Hi. You, you didn't do my favorite part of what you do typically. The let go. Yes. Yeah. The mental <laughs> let go. Because that's the challenger and like the feisty person in me that is the has the monkey brain and just doesn't ever want to feel caged. And my favorite part of your meditations are basically when you're like, and now just let your brain do whatever it wants. And I basically go, yeah. <laughs> because I, I want the freedom, right? And you give, yeah. I love that usually where you give the freedom at the end and you basically say, and now just let your brain run willy nilly and they can do whatever it wants. Um, well, that was lovely. And I know we're, we're nine minutes late and I appreciate you going over, but thank you so much for the time. This was, this was everything. Um, and I so appreciate it. And I will continue to be, uh, as I told your GTM org, the unpaid, uh, unapproved, silent brand ambassador uh, assassin who is gifting headspace to basically every person from the restaurant server to the manicurist to. So uh, it's, it's a wonderful gift for the holidays. Um, and anything I can ever do to help spread the message or get the word out, please. Like I, I am your humble servant. Alison, thank, thank you. And thank, thanks for having me on, on your show. Okay. If you are obsessed with Andy's voice as much as I am, you should check out the Headspace app. Um, you can actually try it for free for two weeks at headspace.com. And speaking from personal experience, it really is an awesome entry into mindfulness and meditation that can help with stress, anxiety, and sleep. And no, this is not a paid ad. I just really love the product, the people, and the purpose of a company that wants to improve the health and happiness of the world. So Headspace, go check it out. Okay. So if you really want to maximize your moments, you could pitch in and help us get the word out. Just rate and review the podcast on iTunes. That's it. Oh, and subscribe wherever you get your podcast so you don't miss future episodes and bonus content. For more motivation, head to notimetowasteproject.com or join the squad on Instagram at no time to waste project. Grazie mille.